The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. You know, Emily, do you remember yesterday you said that something really bad happened? It's about Jason. He's a bully. He says mean things and pulls my hair. This morning, he stepped on my foot on purpose. Emily, do you know why people do mean things? Because it makes them feel strong. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, January 30th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be The government of Iran has been, and continues to be, acting like a bully in the international playground. From its persistent funding and direct action supporting terrorist activities for many years now, to the events that we've witnessed over the past several weeks, its theocratic agenda determines its course. Last week, we discussed the Iran crisis, from America's killing of Iranian terrorist Qassem Soleimani, to Iran's retaliation in Iraq, and to Iran's admitted shooting down of Ukrainian flight 752 over Tehran. And if you listen to last week's show, you'll understand why I came to the conclusion that Iran's actions regarding flight 752 were intentional, calculated, and strategic, given that government's fundamental identity and purpose. Now today, I plan to continue our discussion on Iran and the implications of current events, but more importantly, we will be taking the conversation into an entirely different direction, in the hopes of expanding our perspective well beyond the immediacy of the political moment, and into the realm of a reality beyond the political. And our journey begins right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archive broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. As our show opener today implies, bullies are fundamentally weak, but wish to appear otherwise. In fact, last week I cited a newspaper headline that read, Iran is too weak to start a world war, which itself cited that very weakness and fully acknowledged Iran's expected bully tactics following the airstrike on Soleimani. Now, of course, Iran would absolutely like to be in a position to start a world war by developing and acquiring nuclear weapons, but perhaps not so much for that singular purpose. But as Salim Mansour pointed out last week, Iran wants nuclear weapons for the purpose of continuing to be a bully in the international arena. You use the big threat to enable the lesser bully tactics, blackmail and intimidation. And this is exactly what another weak country we're all familiar with does, namely North Korea. In fact, I would go so far as to argue that Iran's refusal 
to hand over the black box to investigators was simply another bully tactic, one made possible by its strategy in shooting down Flight 752. But Iran's government is not only being a bully to the international community, it's also being a bully towards its own people. When the Iranian government eventually admitted to shooting down Flight 752, much of the world was surprised to see Iranian citizens themselves rise up and protest against their government's action, in a complete contrast to what we witnessed vis-a-vis -vis the protests held the week before in response to the killing of Soleimani. But following the revelation that Iran was indeed responsible for the downing of Flight 752, the local protests went from death to America to a complete refusal to desecrate American or Israeli flags. Contrary to all the propaganda we keep hearing, Iranians apparently do not hate Americans, or Jews for that matter, when you take the issue down to the street level of the people themselves. And that's exactly what I'd like to do this week. Spend a few moments to take this issue down to the street level of the people themselves. With voices screaming World War III, particularly in the media, in the, in the mainstream media, I thought now might be a good time to catch our breath. So on the heels of last week's show about Iran, I thought it might be worth the effort to visit Iran for myself, which thanks to a number of YouTube producers who take us there through their video productions made virtually possible, quote-unquote. There are more of them out there than you might expect. And even more surprisingly, they all seem to come away with the same general experience despite the differing circumstances of their visits. One of those content creators is Peter Santinello. Peter is a fellow who has produced numerous videos about the people and cultures of the Mideast. His videos on the social and cultural realities in Iran are absolutely fascinating. And, you know, if you watch these videos, and I, I recommend that you do, Iran is a stunningly beautiful place, and its people appear to be incredibly pro-American and pro-Western. And Santinello, by the way, has done a similar series of videos about other countries like Saudi Arabia. You'll feel like you were there yourself, and so I recommend you check them out. It's a very different experience from Iran, that's for sure. But there is simply no way to convey the visual splendor of Iran via audio alone. I can't capture or adequately convey the geography and the incredibly modern infrastructure and the things you associate only with cities of the Western world, to be quite frank. But I am able, through a careful selection of audio bites gleaned from hours of reviewing these YouTube videos, to partially convey a picture of the people in Iran. I think it's vitally important to keep a grounded perspective on the incredible contrast between these real-life realities and the political world of unreality that so exemplifies how the elites in every country seem disconnected from their own people. It's like night and day. Posted to YouTube in 2019, here are some of the insights of Peter Santinello as taken from various parts of his three-part series, Inside Iran, An American in Iran. Everyone around me said, don't go to Iran. It's dangerous. Something bad's going to happen. If you go to the ustravel.gov website, it will say, danger, do not go. All these warnings out there. Americans can't just get up and go to Iran. You need to be on a government-minded tour. 
but Italians are free to come here and travel wherever. I'm an American citizen, but I have an Italian passport also. I am here as an Italian. There's, there's this group think that goes on. You see what's on TV and you can't help but, but hold some of that in your head. The reason I'm here to get this human story. What gets heard on the outside is the politics, but what does not get heard is the voice from the people. We know what's typically shown about Iran. Random, random, up this mountain, Dirt roads through the mud. We're sleeping together, Alex. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> 243,000 tomen. It's like $18 or something, right? Okay, okay, fair enough. Do you have an extra mattress? Because I'm here with my friend and he's a guy. I don't want to <laughs> sleep with him. <laughs> So my style is just like, let the story develop as it goes along and, and who I'm going to meet and run into becomes the story and the circumstances and the situations I get into becomes the story. And by doing so, it's completely authentic. Like I can't plan this stuff out. And this is the size of the grid and this is the human, the love of human rights. The love in, of human rights in his, in his, right in his hands. Yes, in his hands. He seemed like this guy that could sleep on the ground and, and eat, you know, mushrooms and, and lamb for in the next five years and just create art. That NASA just believes that people from Rome's side, they can live in Mars better than the others because of the dose of the radioactive. <laughs> this was this artistic, sort of mystical guy, has a coffee shop there and wanted to show me around. And so that's how it is in Iran. You run into someone and all of a sudden they're saying, hey, come with me and my friends. I want to show you a castle overlooking the Caspian Sea. Check this out, audience. The Iranians absolutely love Instagram. Is that right or is it anything else? Yeah, I think it's right for more than 99%. I think that's the only way they can connect to the world. Instagram. Share their art, the internet, yeah. especially the Instagram. I was even told it's like the Tinder of Iran. So everything gets done through Instagram. I look at this culture, it's very well connected. The people really tribe together well. From everyone I've met, they seem to have good friend networks. One of the very cool things about Iran is you're never really alone. I love you, Peter. <laughs> Do you hate Americans? No. no! Are you sure? Are you sure? Yes! Really? We hating uh, American people and we love all the people around the world. So their currency, they have tomans and reals. Tomen is basically one zero less. And the notes are high denominations. That's not even a, a huge one, is it? Oh, okay, that's a 500,000 reals. So they call it 50 tomans. In the beginning, it's just impossible to get it right. So sometimes you give the wrong amount. In, in many countries, someone would take an opportunity in that not in Iran. It's really, it's amazing. I've gotten changed back, even from taxi drivers. 
as a traveler here right now, it's insanely cheap. The plane ticket? Yeah. Uh, around $20. Everything, taxes. Uh, all of them. Uh, for example, I spent three nights in a beautiful guest house, took a, a flight, VIP bus, three breakfasts and a taxi ride. It cost me $110. It's just their currency has gotten absolutely hammered. I'm sure there's some people making a lot of money right now because of that, but the vast majority are getting squeezed hard. It came as a little bit of a surprise to me that the infrastructure is so good here. The roads are good. The highways are good. The inter-country flights, good. Using the internet on your phone, really fast connections. There are, there are two types of people here. I'm gonna oversimplify it. And that can be said for everywhere in the world right now. I, th I feel like it's going more in that direction where there's those that wanna stick on to the old and there are those that wanna progress and want change. And so you've, you feel that, I, I think especially in the woman, they break off in those two directions. There's many different ways from those two directions. There's a huge split there. The women are not shy here, in the cities, from my experience in the cities. Assertive, but not in, a, in an aggressive way at all. Like very, just confident, just would walk right in and start talking. <laughs> just walking along in this very nice young woman, Zara, invited me to sit. And then her sister is over there with her beautiful kids. I was like, okay, here's how this is gonna go down. She's looking to get a free ride. I'm gonna pay for the horse and carriage ride. She might be in it with the, the man here in charge of the operation. Got it, whatever, I'll settle on that. I think so too. We got off. She went, she got into her wallet immediately and went to pay him. I said, no, no, I can, I can pay. She's like, no. And I did the, they have this tradition here, taruf, where they go back and forth. Like, no, you pay. No, I'll pay. No, you pay. No, I'll pay. Usually goes like three times. But I did that and she, she refused and she paid. As a traveler, there's zero hawking. There's zero walking down the street and someone coming at you trying to push a hard sale. They don't do that here. And you're not getting ripped off. Those are two huge bonuses in the culture when traveling in Iran. Instead of Los Angeles. Tarangelis. 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 You are cool. You're cool. I am. You do wheelies on your bike in front of mosques. That's cool. This young woman, Forize, she found me on Instagram. She wanted to meet up. What are your dreams in to life? To our life, to feeling comfortable. Because of situation, we have to control and handle the life. Nowadays, people in my country aren't happy as usual because of the bad situation that we have about our economy. Mm -hmm. What are the conversations at home? Do you guys try to avoid all this stuff or you talk about it all the time? Talk about it all the time. How much has the price of chicken gone up? 50%. Since when? Four months ago to now. Do you know the price of gold? Uh, today, I didn't check it. But most people check the price of gold regularly. Every day. So gold is like the big form of savings here. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Lots of educated people. It's, it's a culture that likes to go into the philosophy of things. They think deeper on many subjects. They have 
Rumi, they have Hafez. This is the uh, philosophy that's touched the world. That was a book about Van Gogh, you know Van Gogh? Sure. Yeah. He was mad, huh? Yeah, but I love him. He did uh, what he wants, you know, in life, in his life. No, I'm saying, in, not just Iran, I'm saying in general, the world. Do you think most people do what they like to do? I think not most people. Yeah? Not what they want, really. Not what they choose. Because of many, many reasons. You like it? You guys speak English so damn well. That's ridiculous. Thank you. Farsi to English, I think, is an easy, easier transition than most languages. So they, their their accents aren't harsh. So that it sounds good. Is this you and me, bro? You gonna go teach classes in Germany and France? Or Hopefully, yeah, if I get the chance. And a lot of people know English, which makes it super easy to travel. And Amin is this young guy, he's got this energy sort of pulsating out of him. They are marching to you. <laughs> it's a battlefield. No, no. Battlefield of beauty. American ladies, I just wanted to tell you I love you, you all American guys, ladies. And yeah, I don't know why this guy is just zooming it in and out. But uh, anyways, I love you. Yeah. Just left Iran a couple days ago. A very interesting trip. But I'm compelled to tell the story of what's going on right now on the ground uh, with sanctions. The feeling, especially in Tehran, is very different. So these sanctions are really pinching the place. And you hear John Bolton talk about- Do everything we can to squeeze Iran hard, as the British say, uh, to, make, uh, to squeeze them until the pips squeak. Wow. And we're gonna do everything we can. They're they wanna bring oil revenue to zero. Oil revenue makes up 80% of the tax base in Iran. Uh, the real, the currency has declined by 70% since the sanctions. Inflation has quadrupled. The country is in recession. You're seeing... And all these so-called, you know, accomplishments of how you're crippling a country. And that all sounds great geopolitically. Like, I'm going to lose... I'm going to lose my pawn uh, to gain a knight. But the reality is, on the ground in Iran, especially in Tehran, people are feeling it. They're feeling it with uh, their jobs, with being able to support their children. So you have middle class, now a lot of them going down, many ending up on the streets. Uh, you have a sadness. There's overall, like, there's a sadness in people. And that energy sort of takes an inertia and, and, and compiles. So you feel like this melees in Tehran. I don't want to paint it as all terrible. There's, there's people smiling and living their lives and not everyone's suffering, but a lot of people, their lives are going downhill. Every young person wants out. Depression medication, I was told by a pharmacist, 50% of the population is on depression meds. Food costs have, have, at the low end, I've heard doubled in the last five months. At the high end, I heard quadrupled. So these successes with sanctions, you're crippling a country, great, but who suffers? Not the politicians, they never do, right? It's the politicians with coffers of money, but who suffers out of this? Iranians, very, and they, the irony is, this is probably the most pro-American country on the planet, as far as like pro-American people. When I say I'm Italian, people are cool. They're like, wow, cool, Italy, great. When I say American, it's like, whew, way up here. It's crazy.
and they're getting pinched hard by their government, they're getting pinched hard by the US government, and uh, it, it breaks my heart because this is, this is one of the most hospitable, open cultures on planet Earth, and they're taking it from all ends. Wow. It's kind of a sobering experience to hear and understand how the politics of a given situation translates to daily life on the ground, isn't it? Take what you heard just now as a warning, as a possible reality that we ourselves might soon be facing, if we aren't doing so already. I couldn't help but relate to the experience of so many people in Iran taking depression medication. Doesn't that in so many ways sound like the growing drug epidemic we're witnessing here in Canada, particularly with the proliferation of injection sites and increased incidents of people begging in the streets? By the way, those are two things we did not see in any of the videos of Iran. In fact, there was a noticeable absence of such activity. As Peter Santinello observed, when you walk down the busy streets in Tehran or in any other Iranian city or town for that matter, you will not be accosted by anyone trying to sell you anything or beg for food, money, or drugs. Now I have to admit that I was just as surprised as Santinello with regard to how good Iran's roads and infrastructure were, including all of its buildings from the historical sites to the modern skyscrapers. And Tarangeles was a perfect way to describe Tehran's traffic woes. In many ways, the scenes of traffic in the highways in Tehran were very reminiscent of Los Angeles. So if you want to paint a picture of Tehran in your mind, think L.A., not some ancient city with primitive modes of transportation. The cars that people were driving looked to be pretty modern to me and in pretty good shape. And the city subway was simply immaculate and seemingly highly efficient. Outside the cities, the highways were in beautiful shape and seemed to be well-maintained and kept up, unlike many I've experienced here in North America. Now, everything we just heard touched on some aspect of our conversation last week. And, although nothing we heard alters or contradicts anything said in our assessment of the Iranian situation, I certainly do have a different perspective on the larger picture of the country we're talking about. Last week, I recall Salim and Robert citing the possibility of Iran having acted with incompetence and callousness when it downed Flight 752. And Salim recited a brief history of how such accidents, quote-unquote, happen in the third world. And this initially left me with an impression of Iran as a third world country. But after what I now know, perhaps it would be more accurate to say that Iran is a first world country with a third world government. Now that might sound like an unusual combination, but one that strikes me as hauntingly very much like the kinds of country and government combinations we're seeing more and more in the Western nations. First world countries with third world governments. And if we keep going in the direction we're going, ever leftward towards the forced collective will eventually slide back into becoming a third world country again. Although I don't know against what standard you might create such a ranking if every country in the world became tribal and collectivist. Remember, on the freedom scale, Iran took some pretty giant steps backwards since the late 70s when the Shah once boasted that miniskirts in Iran were shorter than those in France. 
But of course, the miniskirt analogy was more symbolic than anything else. It was mostly a symbol of how far Iran was moving in the direction of Western culture during the 60s and 70s. The same revolution was essentially occurring in the West. <laughs> I was reminded of an anecdote concerning the original Star Trek series actress Nichelle Nichols, who as the character Lieutenant Uhuru was always seen wearing a very short mini on the 1960s television series. Three decades later, she was confronted by a group of young people at a Star Trek convention who wondered how she could possibly have allowed herself to be so exploited by wearing those short skirts on a popular TV show every week. And I'm paraphrasing here, but her answer went something like, Honey, those short skirts were a sign of our liberation, not of our exploitation. And of course, as with all newfound liberties and freedoms that didn't exist before, People usually exercise that freedom to its acceptable limits until it becomes a norm and things settle back to some sort of equilibrium again. According to one of the many videos I watched about Iran, a study there indicated that over 70% of its women would prefer to be able to dress in Western style while out in public. So again, we see a majority of people being forced to comply to a minority's point of view. I was pleased to hear that Peter Santinello felt compelled to address the issue of sanctions that are being levied against Iran by the United States and the world community. Even if deemed necessary, if there's one thing we can learn from what we just heard, it's that sanctions do indeed have a very real and negative effect on the countries against which they are levied. Like we know this ourselves from our own recent renegotiation of Canada's trade deal with the United States. And of course, China is experiencing the pressure from America as well, to whatever degree. Trade barriers and tariffs are merely lighter versions of economic sanctions. What appear to be political talking points on paper, in practice, are very real consequences for those affected, for the good or for the bad. I'll be addressing the issue of current sanctions and future sanctions that the Trump administration has said it plans to levy against Iran later on in the show today, but not before addressing a key observation made in this regard by Santinello, namely that, quote, every young person wants out, end quote, of Iran. And with that thought in mind, consider who was aboard the Ukrainian Flight 752 at the time of its downing. Not only were all the Canadians aboard of Iranian origin, but so too was a significant portion of the other passengers killed. Now maybe I'm being cynical in the extreme, but given the theocratic and totalitarian nature of Iran's ruling establishment, the intentional downing of Flight 752 seems all the more probable to me at least. Why would Iran kill its own people? I heard many people ask at the time of the crash. I already listed some of my reasons for considering that probability last week, but I didn't get around to this one. Remember, Iran has a government whose forces have shot and killed thousands of its own protesters in the streets. Iran does not want to see its youngest and most able citizens fleeing the country. And I wouldn't be surprised if many of the non-Canadian Iranians aboard were also seeking eventual asylum elsewhere, if not in Canada. What better way for the Iranian government to send a message to its own people while still claiming plausible deniability of its guilt by insisting that the downing of the plane was accidental? 
The fact that the country has what most of us would regard as a first world standard of living relative to many of its neighbors only adds more evidence to my cynical assessment. Like most Iranians, these were young and highly educated individuals, people that are needed to maintain that standard of living and to keep the country advancing forward while maintaining its backward religious culture enforced through the use of law. That's a subject we'll revisit shortly, but not before taking another look at the positive side of the Iranian people themselves. So if you're not already aware of it, one of the most surprising things you'll hear from Iranians is their love of Americans and most things American. Of course, I won't pretend to suggest that the voices we hear on these video logs are representative of all Iranians because that simply wouldn't be realistic given the political realities. But my immediate sense is that you'll find more people hating America in America <laughs> than you will find in Iran. After all, as he observed, there are two types of people as everywhere in the world, those that want to keep the old and those who wish to progress. We love Americans. I kept hearing over and over again in the various videos about Iran that I reviewed over the past week or so, and there were a lot of them, more than I'm presenting to you today. These people certainly did not seem to be shy or intimidated about being seen in public videos proclaiming their feelings towards America. With the exception of the religious dress codes and codes of certain behavior in public, particularly the ones that relate between men and women, Iranians seem to exhibit all of the basic freedoms that we ourselves take for granted here in North America. You know, it didn't appear to me to be the kind of oppression that we so often associate with China or the former Soviet Union or even Nazi Germany. There was no sense of its being a police state in the common perception of that term. It's almost as if the culture policed itself. So coming up next, on this side of the bumper, is yet another sampling of life inside Iran, this time as presented by travel writer Rick Steves, who being fully American and not able to travel on an Italian passport, made it clear at the beginning of his YouTube video called Rick Steves Iran, that he was being accompanied by Iranian authorities who provided him with very strict guidelines as to what could and could not be recorded. Even so, the overall impression of his presentation wasn't really all that different than that of Peter Santinello, who was able to travel completely unencumbered throughout the countryside and the cities of Iran, thanks to his having an Italian passport. Again, Strongly reflected here are the expressed attitudes of Iranians towards outsiders, particularly Americans, of course, and although Steve's presentation was recorded a few years before that of Santinello's, things didn't seem to have changed so much on the ground. And on the return side of our bumper, as coincidence would have it, from yet another individual of Italian origin, this time comedian Nicholas DeSanto from a July 2019 performance, in Britain, reflecting on his perception of global attitudes towards America. But first, here's Rick Steves. So uh, we're learning very much when we come to Iran. Uh, for example? For example, the people are not angry with America. Yes, government has a lot of war to each other because yeah. their benefits, but uh, there's no war between people. That's a very interesting point. So the governments have a difficult time, but the people, if we meet the people, it's like this. Yes, they're friends to each other. Yeah, it's like they this. I like that. Friends. Yeah. 
So for the, for Americans, we have we're very religious people, but we make the government and the church apart. You know, it's um, it's not common to each other. But in Iran, unfortunately, the religious and the politics is mixed with each other. Yeah. So this and is it's the main problem. You think that's... It's the main problem of... Um, and it's uh, the main point of uh, that distance between people and government. So you're a modern young woman. Yeah. Well-educated. I like to be. Yeah. Then you must wear a... C cover your hair. Uh, it's, um, it's a low in Iran. It's a law. It's yeah. a law. Mm -hmm. Now, I cannot shake your hand. No, because no. The here is a religious society. So I can go like, salam? Me too. I can go salam? <laughs> no, bye, khodafes. Okay. Okay. okay, and I can shake his hand. Yes, yes. I shake your hand for her. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Do you like to take a picture? I have many friends in America that are curious about Iran. What can you tell them? What What message would you give to my friends? Your friends about people. About the people in Iran. Yeah. The people in America. Yeah. That's good to hear. Because we love the, we want to understand the people of Iran, and if we, if we can make friends, it's a good thing, I think. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Do you have friends that you come to see on the river? On the river? No. 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 Might we you just come here um, with our families. Okay. Yes. Might you meet a boy down here? No, we don't meet a boy. Where, where do you meet a boy? <laughs> where? Someday you must meet a boy. <laughs> we will meet a boy, but we are not supposed to find a boy. You're not, oh, they find you. Okay, yeah, they find us. Really? How does that work? Okay, it really works. Does it work okay? Yes. So you have no worries about this? No, no worries. That, you'll be happy? Yes. That's good. I hope you're happy. <laughs> Thanks. Very nice to meet you. Me too. Of Iran's 70 million people, well over half are under the age of 30. While there are plenty of minorities, the Persian population dominates. The local ethnicity reflects the turmoil of this country's long history. You'll find people with Greek, Arab, Turk, Mongol, Kurdish, and Azerbaijani heritage. Iranians are not Arabs, and they don't speak Arabic. This is an important issue with the people of Iran. They are Persians, and they speak Farsi. Faces seem to tell a story and are quick to smile, especially when they see a film crew from the USA. Actually, we found that the easiest way to get a smile was to tell people where we're from. I'm from the United States. Oh, you are from the United States? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. America? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yes, it's, it's actually true. true. I love you, America. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's nice to hear. I was impressed by how the people we met were curious and eager to talk. Young, educated people are internet savvy and well-informed about the West. They generally spoke some English. Anywhere foreigners went, signs were bilingual, Farsi for locals and English for everyone else. That's right. Thank you, guys. So I come from the most industrious, the most hardworking, the most efficient nation of Europe. <laughs> some people are chuckling. <laughs> Looks like some people are not happy with their Ferrari's performances lately. <laughs> Is your Lamborghini losing bits and pieces, sir? What's, what's going on here? Anyways, uh, people tell me if you're Italian, what's with that American accent? I chose 
to learn English with an American accent because I wanted to sound cool. Uh, that was not the funny part. Um, the plan initially worked in my home country. The Italians would tell me, yeah, the Americans saved us in the World War and protected us in the Cold War. E tu sei molto cool, sei veramente cool, sei proprio cool. And then I moved to Germany, and the Germans would tell me, yeah, the Americans saved us in the World War and protected us in the Cold War. Und du bist cool, voll cool, total cool. Eigentlich bist du sehr cool. And then I moved here. <laughs> and I learned that British people are quite ungrateful. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. So as we can see, attitudes towards America and Americans are not the same the world round. But once again, some very enlightened views coming from the people on the streets of Iran. In the audio bite from Rick Steves, we once again hear the familiar refrain that Iranians are not angry with Americans per se, and recognize that the void between their nations is the one created by their governments, and particularly the Iranian government. The Iranian woman that Steves was talking to was quite explicit about the problem. Quote, in Iran, politics and religion are mixed with each other. It's the main problem, she said. And not only that, but she added, it's the main cause of the distance between the people and the government, end quote. Now, that's quite a remarkable acknowledgement, especially being made on camera under the supervision of Iranian authorities. Obviously, having your own opinions about the affairs of the nation does not appear to be a frontline concern of the Iranian authorities. But in acknowledging that the main problem in Iran is that politics and religion are mixed with each other, that young Iranian lady reiterated a message that I first encountered through the writings of Ayn Rand, who wrote that faith and force are the destroyers of the modern world. That's faith and force in combination. By themselves, faith and force are not necessarily destructive, but together they always are. There's a simple principle working at the root of that idea. If one or both sides in a dispute are simply operating on the basis of blind faith, then there's no objective or agreed-to reality that can be identified between them. Therefore, the only way that any disputes involving faith can be settled is by the use of force. After all, Reason has been eliminated from being the means of resolution. Imagine if science operated on the principles of faith. The discipline would collapse overnight. If each side just says something is so because I say so, then there are no grounds upon which to compromise. You may recall, as Professor Ian Plymer noted a few shows ago on the subject of climate change, one cannot reasonably say that one quote-unquote believes in climate change or does not believe in climate change. Belief, he insisted, applies only to religion and politics and never to science. And boy, was that ever an understatement. This speaks to an even deeper issue than mere faith. The nature of government itself, particularly in relationship to faith. I recall a few decades back my association with one of the nicest and friendliest people you would ever want to meet. This was a fellow who would bend over backwards to be of help or assistance to just about anyone who asked, and he was a member of the Baha'i faith. 
So one day I asked him, if members of the Baha'i faith ever formed a democratic majority in Canada, would they force their religion on the rest of the country? <laughs> well, without even thinking twice, and with a huge smile on his face, his answer was an emphatic yes. Wow, so much for Mr. Nice Guy. You see the problem here? There's a massive ignorance about the nature of government and the consequences of government action when applied to non-government functions or activities. People seem to forget that government is a gun. And even if you were to use that gun to compel the most benign of activities, you would still end up with a tyranny. I step away from the Iranian experience wondering how it was that those incredibly intelligent and educated people and their government could ever have become so distant from each other. But then I realize I just have to look in the mirror and watch the same process happening right here in my own backyard. It explains a few other phenomena as well like why the Iranian government tolerates such an open and free expression of political opinion. As I once heard an Islamic scholar explain, under Islam, it does not matter whether you believe or not, only that you obey. After all, Islam is all about submission. And on the face of it, and in isolation, that sounds a bit draconian, doesn't it? But if you stop to think about it for a minute... Isn't that true of any nation's attitude towards its laws? Hey, we don't care if you believe in murder or not, just so long as you don't go around killing people. We'll, we'll, we'll settle for that as our social compromise. You, you know what I mean? And although in the West we have mastered a strict separation of church and state, to use the words of the young Iranian lady who commented on this, politics and religion are again becoming mixed with each other. Only this time, in the Western cultures, that religion has become a secular one. Every bit is based on faith, as were the mystical beliefs we thought we left behind. The West has developed its own combinations of politics and faith, like the religions of climate change and gender issues, to name a few. We don't care if you don't believe in climate change as long as you obey, as long as you pay your carbon taxes or comply with carbon penalties by sacrificing your right to produce for someone else's right to do so. And then we're right back to Ayn Rand's equation, aren't we? Faith and force, destroyers of the modern world. When we wear the gun of government, let's be certain that we're using that gun to defend and protect the life, liberty, and property of all. Not to be bullies enforcing our own narrow set of belief systems upon those who clearly do not and cannot share them. Now when it comes to being the bully on the international schoolyard, there are of course those in Iran who have historically seen the United States as being the bully. While today Donald Trump can be seen as the bully, particularly with respect to his threatened sanctions and his international trade negotiations. A lot of people inside the United States see it that way too. So coming up next are a couple of insights into that side of the bully coin. On this side of our bumper, featuring once again some comments made by Rick Steves, this time in front of an audience back in the United States following his trip to Iran. And on the return side of the bumper, and addressing President Donald Trump's trade negotiation tactics, are none other than Glenn Beck and Charlie Kirk from a conversation that took place just a few days ago on January 23rd, to be precise. 
Now, when you go to Iran, it's a thriving country of 70 million people. I want to know what makes them tick. I'm in their capital city, Tehran, with about 12 million people, and there's a veneer of hatred there. I mean, look at the, look at the banner there. It's an eight-story tall American flag made out of dropping bombs and skulls for stars and stripes, saying, down with America. And we've all heard about death to America and so on. I was in a taxi in that traffic jam there later on that day. It was just silent, and suddenly my driver just bursts out, Death to traffic. <laughs> and I thought, no, wait a minute. I thought it was death to Israel or death to America. He said, right now it's death to traffic. <laughs> and I said, well, what's with that? And he said, here in Iran, anytime something's frustrating to us and out of our control, we say death to that. <laughs> and I thought about that. I thought, boy, I'm so glad I'm here to understand this with a little more sophistication than a bumper sticker. So he speaks Farsi. He doesn't speak English. He's translating it directly. And to him, he's saying, damn that. Well, Iran's got baggage, and we need to understand that if we're going to deal with them smartly. Their baggage, and they've got one quarter of our population, is losing several hundred thousand people when Saddam Hussein, funded by the United States, invaded their country. Now, I don't know if we really funded them, but they think they did, or we did, and that is baggage. And when you travel around Iran, every town's got a vast martyr's cemetery filled with victims of that war. And for me to see a widow sitting on the tomb of a dead loved one, as she's done every week for decades, knowing the propaganda she's lived through and the struggles she's lived through, that's baggage. I got to understand what she's going through if I can understand their country better. I wanted to know what makes 70 million Iranians tick, and I found out a lot by going to Iran and actually traveling there. I was standing on the street corner one day, and a woman crosses the street. She said, are you a journalist from America? I said, yeah. And she did one of these little point-on-my-chest things. And she said, I want you to go home and tell the truth. We're united. We're strong. And we just don't want our little girls to be raised like Britney Spears. <laughs> I said, we got something in common here. And I thought about that. What's her baggage? Well, you know, they grew up with the Shah on the throne. And if you grew up with the Shah on the throne back then, they were bragging the miniskirts are shorter in Tehran than they are in Paris. You don't want your little girl to become a boy toy, a crass materialist, and a drug addict. And for good reason, given her situation, she was afraid of that. I wanted to know, what's the, what is the core constituency of the fear-mongering party that rules that country? And I learned. It's small-town, less-educated, fundamentalist parents. Good people motivated by the same thing their counterparts are here in the United States. Fear and love. It must have been about six months ago, uh, the president called me. And we haven't spoken since before the election. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and we always had a friendly relationship, you know, and he, if I were traveling, I would stay at Mar-a-Lago and he'd be someplace else. Um, but uh, we haven't spoken to each other since the election. And he called me up and, uh, <laughs> and I'll never forget my Scottish assistant, who was part of the Royal Marines. He comes in while we're shooting a show and he's off stage and he's like, the president wants to talk to you. <laughs> and I said, cut, stop for a second. What? And he said, the president is on the phone. And I said, wow. the president of what? 
some university <laughs> yeah. or Bolivia. Or, yeah, or, he's the president of Costco. Yeah. Why are you inter- interrupting? And he said, uh, of your country? Wow. And uh, I said, oh, crap. And I didn't even know what to do. And I <laughs> strangely said, can I... Can you ask him if I can call him back? I'm in the middle of shooting a show. What a stupid thing to say. And uh, so he, he said, okay, we finished up the show. I called him back about 30 minutes later. And uh, we talked for oh, about a half an hour. Wow. And it was a, it was a really... I, I wish more people knew him mm-hmm. and could hear him like that. Um, because he he started in and he said, um, you know, I want to thank you for, you know, saying some nice things about me. And he thought I was taking this a different direction. And I said, well, I don't know if you know this, but during, you know, the last election, and he cut me off and he said, oh, no, I'm very aware of that. And I said, no, 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 not that. I, I'm clear you were aware of that. Um, I said, what I said was, I want to be wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't think I am, yeah. but I want to be wrong. And I'm going to judge him. I'm, I'm having to judge him on what I think he's going to do. Wow. Now, once he's the president, I get to judge him for what he is doing. And I said, so there was never any doubt, in my mind at least, that if you did the things that you said you were going to do, I'd be a supporter. I just didn't think you'd do them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we talked about Israel. um, We talked about trade. And I said, I strongly disagree. I bet we spent 15 minutes just on trade. Wow. Um, And he did not shy away. He didn't tell me what I wanted to hear. We had a real, frank, honest conversation, which you don't have usually Mm -hmm. with a politician. Yes. Um, And I think that's what people like about him. Yes. uh, is that he really will tell you what he's thinking. Mm-hmm. Totally. What the problem is sometimes, and yet the blessing, is he is just P.T. Barnum. I think the American people would much prefer someone who's authentic, who says why they believe what they believe, like that conversation you had with the president on trade, even mm-hmm. if you might fundamentally disagree with tariffs. I respect you. You say, I'll deal with that way more than an establishment Republican I, in a I, heartbeat. I made argument after argument and he tried to dismantle an ability, but wait a minute, Mr. President, this, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And in the end, he said, I'm just going to shoot straight with you. I love them. <laughs> I love trade barriers. I love the fact that we can get things from people if we just use our muscle a little bit. I fundamentally disagree, but I hung up the phone going... At least he told me the yes. truth. Yes, He and was not pandering to me. Well, and that's clarity over agreement. Yeah. Well, that was a very interesting story told by Glenn Beck about his conversation with Donald Trump. I think in many ways that the way Donald Trump threatens trade barriers to get the deals he wants for America is, as Beck suggested, a lot of P.T. Barnum. But at the same time, I take Trump seriously. After all, he has the power to follow through, and when he doesn't, it's because he's exercised his own judgment in a given case. But when Iran, that is, the government of Iran, threatens death to America or death to Israel, this is not merely an expression to be equated with death to traffic uttered by a taxicab driver. 
Iran has more than aptly demonstrated that it has followed through on its past death threats, and should the government of Iran ever acquire nuclear weapons, that would be an ominous development indeed. However, one can certainly relate to the past historical baggage carried by Iranians, but on today's broadcast, time simply doesn't allow for an adequate review of American-Iranian history. Perhaps that's something we'll take a look at in the future, since this issue is far from resolved. But you can certainly make the case that both with Iran's threats of death to America and with Donald Trump's threats to use America's muscle a little bit, quote-unquote, Both could be interpreted as using the threat of state force to bully their enemies, competition, or trading partners. It's a valid comparison, up to a point. Trump uses his threats more as a means of negotiation and not necessarily with the intent of following through on a particular one. He's waiting for the other side to make a better offer. And when it comes to sanctions, particularly those levied not as a trade negotiation tactic, but as a substitute for military action, in order to get a declared state enemy to comply to a given condition, in this case, Iran's abandoning its pursuit of nuclear weapons, well, those sanctions serve a different purpose, don't they? As Peter Santanello sadly observed earlier in the show today, who suffers? Not the politicians, but Iranians. The irony is that they love Americans the most, and it breaks my heart, he said. And you know something? Breaks my heart, too, and I think Trump actually recognizes that fact and sincerely empathizes with the Iranian people in this regard. Consider some of his following statements and actions. Even after Iran sent a couple of ballistic missiles against American troops in Iraq, Trump did threaten the country with additional sanctions, but at the same time, he made the clear statement that he wished the people of Iran well and hoped that they would be able to prosper and flourish in a country that would allow them to do so. He clearly placed a wedge between the people of Iran and their government, a divide that apparently a lot of Iranians are already well aware of. I also recall a few months ago that Trump canceled the military strike against an Iranian target because at the last minute he felt that the collateral damage to the lives of Iranians was not worth the value of the target in question. But on the other hand, when Trump took out Qasem Soleimani, there was no collateral damage. No other mass loss of life was experienced. And of course, to make up for that collateral shortcoming, the government of Iran itself shot down a plane carrying Iranian passengers. Yet another reason I believe that this was intentional. After all, even after Iran's government admitted to shooting down the plane, it still blamed its own act on the United States. Iran does not respect the lives of its own citizens, and we've seen that demonstrated on many occasions. Seems to me that Trump is far less willing to kill Iranians than the Iranian government is itself. Qasem Soleimani has taught us that death is the beginning of life, not the end of life, noted a commentary in the Globe and Mail that was cited on our show last week. Indeed, Iran has repeatedly called for the death of America and for the obliteration of Israel, and I don't for a minute think that they're doing it in jest or simply to negotiate. If death is to be accepted as a standard of morality, then one could argue that Iran's pursuit of global terrorism and murder is justifiable and moral. However, that's irrational, contradictory, and evil. The country certainly doesn't seem to care about the lives of others when it comes to terrorist activities that it perpetuates and funds. 
Morality pertains only to the sphere of man's free will, only to those actions which are open to his choice, noted philosopher-novelist Ayn Rand. Man must choose his actions, values, and goals by the standard which is proper to man in order to achieve, maintain, fulfill, and enjoy that ultimate value, that end in itself, which is his own life. When one contrasts the death cult that motivates the actions of the Iranian regime with America's actions based on its philosophy of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it seems clear to me that U.S. President Donald Trump has acted justly. It is also clear that it is solely the government of Iran that was morally culpable for the downing of Flight 752. The history of the politics of the Mideast and of America's relationship with various Islamic nations is long and complex. After all, politics makes strange bedfellows. And politics also divides and separates people who should be on the same side and who have more in common than most would be aware of. And that's kind of how I see the whole American-Iranian entanglement. Trump himself has already made it clear that he would like to see the United States withdraw from playing an active role in the various Mideast conflicts. Personally, and this is a topic for another day entirely, I actually do not believe that a lot of Mideastern countries would even want the U.S. to simply withdraw particularly the weaker nations, who tend to see a superpower in the region as a countervailing force against their militarily superior local enemies. But that's one of my theories to consider for another time entirely. History and culture are the ways in which most people's politics is experienced. And so in many ways, one is not conscious of the politics per se, unless there are clear and extenuating circumstances that forces a consciousness of it like the threat of war, or war itself, like economic collapses and corrupt justice systems that, despite anyone's awareness, becomes part of the lives of those so affected. Now, I don't pretend to have all the answers, or even any answers for that matter. I just hope that today's show has opened the door to a few questions that need to be asked, in the hope of eventually finding that elusive solution that we all know is the solution, individual freedom itself. Let's hope that Donald Trump is helping to move it in that direction, despite his P.T. Barnum tactics. I hope our presentation today helped you to see a country that is supposedly our declared enemy in a different light. Finally, I could not possibly leave you at the end of our show today without sharing this brief mention of Iran's Persian cultural history, as related by Rick Steves, on the philosophy of Zoroastrianism. At the edge of Esfahan on a windy bluff stand the well-worn remains of the Atashkade Fire Temple. Way back in the 5th century, the eternal flame of what many consider the first monotheistic religion, Zoroastrianism, burned from this mountaintop temple. Zoroastrianism, which predates Islam by over a thousand years, is a reminder that Iranian or Persian culture goes back long before the 7th century advent of Islam. The earliest Persian kings were Zoroastrian. This medallion symbolized humankind finding enlightenment in the one Zoroastrian god. The religion had three essential tenets, right thinking, right saying, and right doing. What? Now where have I heard something like that before? Well, for starters, every time we invite you to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into 
Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright I, I must say, I'm a right-wing comedian by the way Do you guys like common sense? <laughs> right-wing has become the language of common sense You get things, uh, you get to say things which are not politically correct but are essentially correct uh, 